Wonderful to see you. As Brogan says, I'm Ben, married to Ellie, who's just down here at the front, gives away of Ellie, and we're leading the team here at St. Thomas's. And as you've seen from the video, we're relaunching St. Thomas's um, as the, what, the Diocese of Newcastle's resource church. And you don't need to worry about what that is, but basically the bishops have asked us to come and relaunch St. Thomas's as a center of mission and church planting, and particularly engaging with young people and university students, obviously lots of students just within a stone's throw of um, this very church. And so that's what we're doing. And it wouldn't have been possible without the wonderful existing congregation that have been faithfully meeting here at St. Thomas's for years and years. And they're represented tonight by um, my church warden, John, who sat at the back. Um, John, give us a wave. John's a wonderful man. Let's give him a round of applause for... None of this would have been possible without um, John and Mary, the church wardens here. So we are very thankful for both of them. As you've heard, we officially launch um, on the 6th of October. And so we're doing these little, um, these little four o'clock services in the run-up to the launch. And thank you so much for joining us early. And what I want to say, just as the team leader here, is if you've joined us early, please feel like you're on the adventure with us. Like, it's so exciting doing something from scratch like this. And we really want to partner with you. And we are so thankful that you're here early. And we're so thankful that you're on the adventure with us. And we would love for you to join in. And we'd love to get to know you. Um, so please do stay around at the end and get to know us. There'll be cake and tea and coffee and all kinds of things. And we'll go over to the pub afterwards as well if you want to do that with us. So thank you so much for joining us. It is a privilege to have you with us. One of the things that we love at St. Thomas's is the Bible. Um, as a Church England church, we go through, we're going through what um, is called, you don't, again, you don't need to worry about this, but the lectionary, which is basically the Church of England working through the entire Bible every three years. And that's a really good thing because we just, we love the Bible and we want to teach all of it. And so we're going to be doing that. And at the minute, the Church of England is in Luke's gospel. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, if you could open up your Bible to Luke chapter 16. For those of you that are new to church and perhaps haven't been before, you'll find Luke about three quarters of the way through the Bible. And Luke is a story, a gospel um, story about Jesus. So it's somebody writing down an eyewitness account of who Jesus Christ is. And so we get to Luke chapter 16. Now just a warning, Luke chapter 16 is notoriously one of the most complicated parables that Jesus ever taught. And you'll see why as we read it. And my prayer, as I've discovered this week, is that we'll all find some hidden gems in here for all of us. Because there is, there are lots of amazing things in this passage of scripture. So Luke chapter 16. We'll start at verse 1. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, well, what do I do now? My master is taking away my job. He's been sacked. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job, many people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. 
Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with little can be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you a property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is the word of the Lord. So for those of you that were with us last week, last week we were looking at Luke chapter 15, which is all about Jesus's mission to seek out and save the lost. And no doubt you've, you've heard some of the parables that are in Luke chapter 15. You've got the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son. And then Luke 16 takes a very interesting turn. Jesus has t- been teaching about the lost, and then all of a sudden, he starts to talk about money. Now, as good readers of the Bible, we should be asking this, what is the connection? What's the connection between seeking and saving the lost and then Jesus suddenly talking about money? Well, one of the keys, I think, is to remember that immediately before this parable becomes Jesus' most popular and most commented on parable, the parable of the prodigal son. Most people know that story. This parable, by contrast, is one of the most least commented on parables of Jesus. And I want to put to us this afternoon, probably one of the least misunderstood as well. It's difficult to understand what Jesus is getting at. I've not met many people who, when they've told me why they started coming to church or why they follow Jesus, have said, uh, the parable of the shrewd manager completely changed my life. You know, I read that and immediately understood the gospel. And at that moment, I was saved. I think the clue to knowing why this parable is avoided and misunderstood and why people don't really read it is this. Because Jesus's punchline is you cannot serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. People don't want to hear that message. Now, before you start thinking, gosh, I've just come to this church and the vicar's already talking about money, the issue here really isn't about money. The issue isn't about how much you're giving to the church or to charities. The issue is the condition and state of our hearts. One of the messages of Jesus' teaching, in fact, this is why he talks about money so much. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. In other words, if you really want to know what you're worshipping, if you really want to know who you're worshipping, look at your bank account. Wherever your money is going, that's probably where your heart and worship and devotion really is. 
For those of you that have got Monzo, which I'm a real evangelist for, the new online app-based bank, one of the wonderful things I love about Monzo is it gives you a breakdown every single month of where your money has been going. And you can see what you've been spending most of your money on. And our tithe, our giving to this church, comes out of, comes out of our Monzo account. And we can really see where our priorities are when Monzo gives us the breakdown of where our money is going every single month. As one commentator put it that I was reading this week, the way we view and handle money is an astoundingly accurate thermometer for your spiritual life. Now, as I say, this really isn't primarily about money. It's about the state and the condition of our hearts. But I think Jesus knows that this is true. That what we think about, our, not just our money, but our possessions, what we think about the stuff that we own, really is an amazingly accurate thermometer for where we're at with Jesus. So for those of you that are following Jesus, um, think about this. How often do you think, how's my prayer life doing? Or how often do you think, how often am I reading the Bible? Or am I growing in love or joy or peace and patience and all of those good things? Now, we ask ourselves those questions a lot. At least I hope we do. But how often are we asking questions like, am I being generous with my money? What am I doing with the stuff that God has given me? Now, we don't ask those questions as often. And I think that that is the reason why Jesus tells this parable. Now, as I've said, it's pretty complicated. It seems to not mean what it, Jesus is really getting at at the surface. And so what I want us to take away from this is a fresh love for this misunderstood and not very commented on parable of Jesus. And in order to do that, I need to introduce you to the characters. So firstly, Jesus introduces us to a rich man. Now, this man is super rich. We know this because he's employing people to look after his wealth. Now, you only do that if you've got a lot of money. I don't know how many people you know have people, several people employed just to look after their money, but this guy does. We know that he has lots of land. We know this because he's letting out his land to mass-scale olive oil producers and mass-scale wheat producers. And you'll see how mass-scale they were just as we go through the parable. People are running businesses on his land. We also know that he's super rich just by the sheer amount of money that people owe him. Again, that will become clear as we go through the parables. That's the first character. The second character that we're introduced to is the rich man's manager. Now, this man works for the rich man and he manages all of the household accounts, the land, the money, the tenants, the businesses. He is the administrator of the whole estate. And this manager would have had very high social status. Whenever there was a party in town, this guy would have been there because you want this guy on side because he's the very direct access to the boss, to the man in the town who owns everything. But the problem with this guy is there's rumors going around that he's stealing money. There's rumors going around that he's embezzling some of his boss's money and keeping it to himself. There's rumors going around that he's just wasting his boss's money on all kinds of things. Now, we know that because the Greek word used in this, in Jesus's version of, in Jesus' parable of the shrewd manager is exactly the same Greek word that is used to describe the prodigal son who wasted all of his father's inheritance. It's exactly the same Greek word. And so this guy is literally pouring his boss's money down the drain. Well, as you can imagine, the rich man is not very happy at all with this. And so he basically calls the manager into his office and says, you're going to lose your job. 
What's all this I'm hearing about you? How dare you steal from me? Give an account for your actions and do it right now. Now, I imagine if you delegated your bank account to somebody to look after and they'd wasted lots of your money, no doubt you would be doing the same. Now, the manager was, in essence, the rich man's debt collector. And he's been going around upsetting everybody in town. And his social status in the last few months has taken a bit of a nosedive because everybody's been hearing that he's been creaming a little bit off the top for himself. All of this money that is reportedly owed to the rich man, he's actually been taking a huge cut for himself. He's been stealing from people. He's been embezzling funds. He may have even used a bit of trickery and, and all kinds of things, maybe even a bit of abuse in order to get money off people. So this manager, he's not daft, knows that he's short on options. And we can almost see him, as Jesus tells the story, extrovertly processing what his options are. Two things spring to mind. He could either turn to manual labor, he thinks. He says he could dig holes. But he, he, says, he comes up with an excuse and says, I'm too weak. I've got a bad back, basically. I couldn't possibly dig holes for a living. Manual labor's not for me. The second thing that springs to mind is that he could beg. But imagine being a beggar in a town where you've been stealing from everybody, where, you're notori where you've been known as notoriously embezzling funds from people and misusing their money. Are you likely to get any money from people in that town? Probably not. And so he realizes that he's very short on options. And so he concludes, I'm going to be homeless. I'm not going to have any money. I'm not going to have a roof over my head. So what I need to do is win some friends and some rich, influential friends very quickly so that when I do lose my job and my house, somebody else will take me in. Somebody else will employ me. Somebody else will give me some money and a job. And this is when we see just how shrewd and clever this manager is. He basically begins to call in these very rich, influential people who are letting land from his boss, who owe the boss some money. And so the first person that he calls in is a large-scale olive oil producer. Now, we know that the equivalent amount of olive oil that this guy owed to the rich man was 900 gallons of olive oil, if you can imagine such a thing. 900 gallons. Now, the value of this olive oil would have been equivalent to three years' average salary in money. So this olive oil is worth a lot. Now, if we were to round that into English pounds in today's currency, the average full-time salary, if you're working full-time in the United Kingdom, is about 30,500 pounds. Let's round it up and say it's 100,000. This guy, this olive oil producer, owes the rich man 100,000 pounds. Now, that is a lot of money. The manager, though, calls this guy into his office and says, basically, before you see anything, before you say anything to anybody, before anybody notices what we're doing, take the invoice, cut out the £100,000, write £50,000 on it, let's call it quits, go home and don't tell anyone about it. And that's exactly what happens in the story. The manager slashes this guy's debt to £50,000. Now, if you're the olive oil producer, what are you thinking at this point? You're thinking, gosh, this guy's generous. I'm going to keep him on side. So now the manager, when he didn't have any friends, has suddenly got a very wealthy and influential friend. Now, before we can even blink in the story, the next thing that happens is that a wheat farmer appears. Now, this guy 
over 1,000 bushels of wheat. Now, you probably don't, I didn't even know what that meant in today's terms, but in order to put it into some kind of context, that is the equivalent to 10 years worth of average salary. So in today's terms, that's worth 300,000 pounds, if we round it, 300,000 pounds. And the, the manager does a very similar thing, slashes the debt, says, don't tell anyone, and just make sure you pay back very quickly, and we'll just keep it to ourselves. Now, the wheat farmer, probably like the olive oil farmer, was probably astounded again at how generous this manager was being. And now the, man the manager has got a very influential olive oil producer and a very influential wheat farmer on side who are going to probably do lots of different things for him because they've seen that he has been generous and clever and all of these kinds of things. But it's not just these businessmen that are impressed with the manager. It's also the rich man himself. He even gets commended by the rich man. Why? Well, this manager has a bit of a reputation, as I've said. He's been stealing. He's been um, embezzling funds. He's been misusing money, all kinds of different things. And now all of a sudden, he's slashing debts. And the rich man's response is kind of ironic, isn't it? And just to illustrate, um, our good friends, Lee and Rachel, Lee's our resourcing minister here, they just signed and exchanged contracts and got keys to a house up in Gosforth this week. Now, in order to buy a house, as you know, you need to take out a mortgage unless you're super, super rich. Um, and so Lee and Rachel have taken out a mortgage. Can you imagine what would happen if somebody on behalf of Lee and Rachel's bank rang them tomorrow and said, Lee and Rachel, you know all of that money that you owe for your mortgage. What we're going to do is we're going to slash it in half. Now, from now on, you only owe this amount of money. You don't need to pay us anymore. And by the way, let's just keep that between ourselves. Can you imagine what would happen? The person who made the telephone call on behalf of that bank would probably get the sack. And the bank would still demand that Lee and Rachel owed the full amount anyway. So what is going on in this, with this manager's behavior? Well, some commentators have speculated that the reason the manager is slashing all of the debts of these businessmen that owe the rich man lots of money is that basically he's getting rid of the bits that he was taking for himself. So to illustrate, in reality, what the olive oil farmer really owed to the rich man was just 50,000 pounds. But the manager was adding another 50,000 pounds on top and he was taking it just for himself. The same with the wheat farmer. He was basically slashing his commission. Now, as I've said, the reason he was doing this was the rich man still gets what he's owed. So the rich man's going to be still impressed with him, but he's just forfeiting all of his profit. He's being very shrewd. Now, Jesus, by the way, before we start to get impressed with the manager, is not giving this guy a compliment. He's a crook, he's conniving, he's a robber, he's extorting money, he's embezzling funds, and we're not to behave like that. But Jesus' point is this. If sinful people know how to handle money in order to win friends, if they can be shrewd with their money, then how much more should the people of God be using their resources to build the kingdom of God? How much more can we use the stuff that God has given us in order to build the kingdom? Now, we know that this is what Jesus is getting at because of the shift that happens in verse 9. 
Jesus begins to talk about, and you can see this in your Bible, Jesus begins to talk about people of the light. Believers, Christians, if a sinful, crooked financial manager can use money to make friends and make sure that he has a roof over his head, how much more should we be using our resources, our stuff, our money, not for evil purposes like that, but for good? Now, we know that we can't take our bank accounts, our big TVs, our fancy houses, cars, etc. We can't take them to heaven with us. So what Jesus is encouraging us to do is to use that stuff now for good and for the kingdom. Now, as I said at the beginning, this parable, which is very complicated, comes immediately after the parable of the prodigal son about Jesus teaching on seeking and, seeking and saving the lost. Why? Why does it come in, in that sequence? Well, because Jesus wants us to use our resources to reach those on the edge. Jesus wants us to use our resources to reach those who are lost. Just as a way of illustration, the Church of England, I don't know, you probably do know this, sits on quite a lot of assets and money. And over the past few years, it's released millions and millions of pounds to go into mission. And um, it's released quite a lot of money um, to see this church turned into a resource church for this city and beyond. It's putting its money where its mouth is so we can begin to reach those who are on the edge, who are lost. All the university students, the young families, the young people, the homeless, all of those types of things. The Church of England's putting this into practice. So lots of people have used this parable as a capitalist tract. And that is not what is going on here. Jesus is not encouraging us to get rich. Jesus is not encouraging us to embezzle money and to win you know, people of high social status. Jesus is saying, be at least as shrewd as this crooked financial manager to reach those on the edge, to reach the poor. Not so that you can get famous and rich and all of those kinds of things. And we know that Jesus can't have meant that because Jesus died poor and basically alone. All of his disciples even abandoned him. Take your resources and use them to make an eternal difference. Now it's in this context that this parable suddenly begins to make sense. It's, now it suddenly fits in with everything else that Jesus has ever taught. The original hearers of, in, of Luke's gospel, by the way, and of Jesus' teaching this parable would have got this. It's just that we need to cross the bridge back to first century Israel, Palestine, understand it in its context, and then come back to Newcastle in 2019 so that it makes sense to us. Suddenly it fits with Jesus saying, don't store up your treasures on earth, but store up treasures, treasures in heaven. Suddenly, it makes sense that Jesus would also say, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Now, as a vicar, people often say to me, I'd love to be more generous with my money, but I can't do it until I've got a full-time job. Or I'd love to be generous with my money, but I can't do it until I've got that next promotion. Or I'd love to be generous with my money, but I can't do it until, that, until my boss gives me that bonus at work. And I often think, and I've sometimes said to people, you may say that, but I promise you, when you get your promotion or you get your bonus or you get your whatever it is, you will not give any more money. How do I know that? Because Jesus says so. Look at verse 10. 
Whoever can be trusted with little can be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with little will be dishonest with much. If you can't give a little, if you can't learn to give when you've just got a little, there's no way you'll give when you've got a lot. Now, as I've said, the issue here really isn't about money. It's about where your heart is. It's about the state and condition of our hearts. The amount we give is not important. How much stuff we have is not important. It's whether we're being generous and we're responding in the generosity that God has shown to us with generosity towards him and to those on the edge and to his church and his people. Now, lots of things are worshipped in this world today. And the Bible essentially teaches if you worship money, it will eventually destroy you because you'll never have enough. If you become addicted to money, you will never have enough. You'll constantly want more and more. If you're addicted to fame, the amount of fame you have will never be enough because you'll want more and more and more. If you're addicted to social media um, followers, having how many social media followers you could possibly get and constantly increasing that, it will never be enough because you'll constantly want more and more. If you're addicted to sex and relationships, the amount of good relationships or sex you get will never be enough because you'll just want more and more and more. Jesus is the only object of our worship that will not destroy or devour us. Only Jesus is enough. But we live in a world that doesn't reflect this truth at all. So here's some statistics that I found just while um, thinking about this passage earlier this week. The average person in the UK spends 12 days a year looking for things that they cannot find. In in hours, 12 days a year. That's lost paperwork, lost keys, losing your mobile phone, misplacing your computer, whatever it may be. The average person in this country spends 12 days a year looking for stuff. Now, if that wasn't shocking enough, the average household in the UK owns 300,000 items if you can get your head around that. Now, I don't know if they're literally counting every Ikea screw that goes into a piece of furniture or or whatever, but 300,000 items in the average UK home. The average person living in in this country will spend over 350 hours a year shopping. Think about all the good we could be doing instead of just spending time shopping. 350 hours a year. Now, um, here's a shocking one. The average 10-year-old has 238 toys, but only plays with 12. So uh, I heard a parent just shout out, that's true, (laughs) at the back. Is that true, Andrew? (laughs) I I see this with um, our godchildren. We buy them lots of things. Um, Amara just loves playing with Jess, just this one little doll. Here's another one. Um, I was convicted by this, and Ellie, I hope you are as you see this. The average home has more TVs than people. We've got a TV in every room. That was convicting for me. And now this one isn't relevant to this side of the pond. It's true over the other side of the pond in the United States of America. Americans spend more money on jewelry every year than they do on higher education. $100 billion a year is spent on jewelry. 
That is, a, that is an unbelievable amount of money. Tuition fees in the United States of America are incredibly high. So to spend more on jewelry than on education in a year is quite something. Now, the point is we are addicted to stuff. We're, addic we're addicted to accumulating more and more and more. Now, what I want to say is this, there's nothing wrong with having money. There's nothing wrong with having stuff. There's nothing wrong with having a house, etc., etc. The point Jesus is getting at is what do you do with those things that you have? Are you using them to build the kingdom or are you using them to live a comfortable life? The resources that God has given you, are you going to put some of them towards tackling the climate, chain, the climate problem that is facing the world at the moment? All of your money that you have, are you going to put that towards helping those on the margins and those on the edge? Are you going to help those on the other side of the world who are in need? Are you going to use your stuff to have an eternal impact or just to acquire more large flat screen TVs? Jesus does actually want us to get intoxicated with wealth, but with wealth that will last. And what's the wealth that will last? Relationships, joy, peace, love, patience. All of these things are things that will last forever. Now, the manager in the story was looking after somebody else's money and somebody else's wealth. And if you're a follower of Jesus here today, the same is true for you. The stuff that we have isn't really ours. It belongs to God. We're just stewarding it. We're looking after it. Jesus' point is pretty clear and simple, actually, in the end, isn't it? He's basically asking this question, how am I going to use what God has given me? Now, for those of you that um, don't usually come to church, maybe just checking out who Jesus is or the church, or, and for those of us that have been coming to church for years, the reality um, is this, that in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see a God who gave everything for us. Everything. And this is why this isn't just about money. God gave everything. He even gave his own son, Jesus, so that we could know life in all of its fullness and in all of its freedom. The challenge is, what are we going to give God in return? Are we going to compartmentalize our life, not just money, but everything, and say, oh, you can have this bit, but not this bit? Or do we give everything to a God who has given everything for us? As I was thinking about this parable, um, I was drawn to the words of that ancient hymn, Be Thou My Vision. And the last words in the context of this parable seem all the more challenging. The last, word, the last verse of this hymn, and I'm just going to read it to us now. Riches I need not, nor man's empty praise. You're my inheritance now and always. You, God, and you only, the first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Now the adventure that we're going to be going on here at St. Thomas's 
over the coming months from when we launch in October, but even before then and, from, um, and over the coming years is that God has asked us to join with him in seeking and saving the lost. God has asked us to join in with him as we seek to make a difference in this city and bless those on the edge and bless all of the people that are around this church. This church building, the current St. Thomas's has existed since 1170 something, I think, in, in Newcastle. And um, this building's been here since 1827. And it was built to reach all of the young families and young children and young people that suddenly started living in this area of Newcastle. The call on us again as a church is how are we going to use what God has given us, our amazing location, this amazing building, the resources that he's given us through the Church of England, how are we going to use them to bless this city? How are we going to use them to bless the university students around us? How are we going to use them to bless children and young people and the poor and all of those types of things? So just as we think and reflect on, on, on this parable, let's be asking ourselves the question, what has God given me? Even if you don't think it's very much, I bet you've got a roof over your head. You can use your house for God's kingdom. You've got some skills. You've got some talents. How can you use them for God's kingdom? What has God given you? Your degree, your university, your accommodation, your course mates, your future course mates. Your money. How can we together and as individuals use those things to make a lasting, eternal impact? How can we respond to a God who's given everything on the cross? Shall we stand together as we respond?